and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And today we're talking about the 19th century Chinese poet Wu Cao. Before we begin, I just have one content warning for this episode, which is that there will be a brief mention of suicide. If that's something you don't want to hear, feel free to check out any of our other episodes. All of them have content warnings at the start. Also, just a quick disclaimer that I don't speak Chinese. I speak Chinese, but I'm definitely not a native speaker, so my pronunciation's probably not perfect either. But Irene is going to be offering me pronunciation advice during this episode, and we're going to be doing our best. But that also means not all the sources on Wu Cao's life were available to me, but I've done the best I can with the English sources that do exist. I also just wanted to mention mention that Wu is her family name and Zhao is her given name. So that's backwards to how we do it in English. So I'm going to be referring to her as Zhao throughout this episode. In terms of biographical detail, we don't actually know that much about Wu Zhao's life. She was born probably in 1799, though I couldn't find in English a specific source for that fact, and that was sometimes written as circa 1799. When I started researching this before I handed it off to you, I read a Chinese academic article. The whole article was literally just like, speculation on the birth date of Wu Zhao. Okay, so that date is up for debate, but we're talking about around that time. Yeah, like the speculation was within like five years, sort of. Okay. Zhao was born in Renhe, which is near the town of Hongzhou on China's central east coast. Zhao's father was a merchant and her family had no literary background. So we're not actually sure how she came to learn to read and write. She also reportedly knew how to paint and how to play the gu qin which is a plucked musical instrument. It's kind of like a zither. Oh, okay, so you know about this. Tell us what <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, so it's a um, long, flat musical instrument, and it's played like on a tabletop in front of you. So the strings are laid out like parallel to the end of the table in front of you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You'll often see when people play it, they'll have like little picks on their fingers. You know those like fake claws you put on your fingers? <laughs> they look a bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, cool. There you go. At some stage in her life, Zhao married a merchant, so her father's a merchant, her husband's also a merchant, whose name we only know of as Huang. It would probably have been an arranged marriage. We don't know much about Huang or about their relationship, but it does seem that they weren't well suited to each other. And we also don't know of Huang having any literary background. I learned a couple of facts about Huang this morning while I was trying to find out how to pronounce his name for you. For our listeners, I messaged Irene this morning saying, I've just realised I don't know how to say, I looked up how to say most of these names. There are a couple that, as somebody who didn't speak Chinese, I just couldn't find out the tones for. So Irene kindly did some research for me this morning. I haven't actually verified these facts. Like, I was just reading on Baidu, which is the, like, Chinese online encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. And what I learned was she apparently got married in her early 20s. Okay. Which was perceived as quite late. Yeah. By her family. Huang was a silk merchant. Mm Mm-hmm. He didn't have any particular interest in, yeah, like you said, in literary arts or the kinds of things that she was interested in. Yeah, so we do actually have some sources from Cao herself where she wrote about how she felt about her husband. So Cao wrote about how she envied the female poet Lu Hui 
and her husband Jiang Dun because they both shared and appreciated each other's literary talents within their marriage, and she herself didn't have that with her husband. And there is evidence of other female poets from this time in China who exchanged poems with their husbands, or they'd write poems and swap them, or they'd write poems together and stuff like that, and we have no works like that from Cao. Yeah, now I read this little... This was all this morning. I read this little... This has become a collaborative podcast. It has, unintentionally. I read this little anecdote this morning where her husband finally showed interest in her poetry and sort of Mm. said to her, look, why don't you read me some of your poetry? And she was very excited and she's like, okay, I'll read some of my poetry to him. And she starts reading this poem and at the end of the poem he's very still and very quiet and she realises that he's fallen asleep. Oh, I think that really embodies what little we do know about Sao and Huang's relationship. I just want to be clear again when I say this, that I read this did not verify it at all. The only purpose of my reading this article was to find their names with the Chinese characters so I could let you know about pronunciation. Yeah. So Sao often writes about her feelings of loneliness and of being unrecognized and kind of unappreciated for her work because she is a woman. The other thing that she writes about is about her love for women. I'm going to share quite a long excerpt from one of Zhao's poems now. And I've chosen quite a long excerpt because this is quite a short episode. We don't have much information on her, so I thought we may as well read a fair bit of queer poetry. Sounds fun. I always feel, like, quite weird reading poetry in translation. Mm, Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. So if you do speak Chinese, I highly encourage you to look this up in the original. I'm sure you'll get more out of it than we can in translation. Hopefully we'll be able to find the original Chinese version to put alongside an English translation on our blog. So look out for that. So a little bit of background. The style of poetry that Zhao wrote most often is called zi poetry, and it's lyric poetry, which is generally about the feelings and emotions of the poet, so it's personal and the voice of the poet is expressed in the poem, and it was traditionally set to music. This particular poem is called To the Courtesan Qinglin. I'm not reading the whole poem, so I have skipped out some parts, but kept the most obviously queer parts. On your slender body, your jade and coral girdle ornaments chime like those of a celestial companion come from the green jade city of heaven. One smile from you when we met, and I become speechless and forget every word. You glow like a perfumed lamp in the gathering shadows. We play wine games and recite each other poems. Unconventional as I am, I want to possess the promised heart of a beautiful woman like you. My dear, let me buy a red-painted boat and carry you away. That was, like, very sweet and very queer. Hmm, yeah, no, it's very nice. It's a very cute poem. I really like the closing line. Yeah. I also just love the universality of the queer woman experience. I saw you. You were so beautiful. I'm speechless. (laughs) (laughs) That is a common trope in queer woman poetry. Yeah. Yeah. And also that she was literally like, did you fall from heaven? What was it? Yeah, your jade and coral ornaments chime like those of a celestial companion come from heaven. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty clear. So, obviously I'd abridged that to include the queer parts, but even then, I would say it's a pretty explicitly queer poem. I mean, I feel like adding extra verses in between those is not going to take away from what's in those verses. No. Unless the extra verses are something like, this is from the point of view of a heterosexual man who's in love with this woman. Ah, no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Even then, I'd be a bit suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if a woman sits down and thinks, I'm going to write a poem from the point of view of a heterosexual man about how attractive women are, like, 
I think that's a queer act, frankly. Yes, but it's worth noting, though, that in this poem, Zhao does kind of maintain a level of plausible deniability. So there's nothing sexual about her language, and she's kind of just treading the line of what is conventional and acceptable in friendship poems between women at the time, where you'd write a poem to your friend about how great your friend... I mean... I feel like that section where she's like, I'm unconventional and I want to elope with you. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was about to say. The uh, the word unconventional is what really sets this apart as definitely not being a friendship poem. And also, you know, I want to carry you away in a boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I too want to carry my girlfriend away in a red boat, like. Yeah, but yeah, specifically unconventional, which um that word, and I'm sorry for you, a Chinese speaker, that I don't actually have the Chinese original word in front of me. It also means audacious and things like that. So it's kind yeah. of you know, unconventional and deliberately going out of the box. But yeah, that unconventional as I am, I want to possess the promised heart of a beautiful woman like you, explicitly I think, makes this a poem about queer desire rather than a poem about my friend who's really pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Like, when you start saying, I want to possess the heart of, it's like... Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to possess my friend's hearts. And the promise in there? The promised heart. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the idea of, like, promising yourself to someone Mm. is a very kind of romantic notion rather than a platonic notion. Yeah, yeah. Whether that's, like, reasonable or not, we can have discussions about our society's weird hang-ups about romance and ownership. This is a short podcast, and that's a long (laughs) conversation. Yeah, but anyway. You can all have that discussion in your own time with your friends and partners. (laughs) (laughs) Well, homework for queer respectlessness. Yeah. I was also going to ask you, as somebody who obviously has studied China, what you would say the significance of the red painted boat is. Why red? Red is a very significant colour in Chinese for a lot of reasons. You wear red for special occasions, like celebrations and that kind of Mm. thing. It's a happy colour. It's a good luck colour. Like my girlfriend, who is half Chinese, whenever she goes to like a Chinese family event, she wears red. Oh, yeah, just because it's a celebration. Yeah. Traditionally, it was the colour you would wear for weddings. Oh, like, okay. That makes it pretty gay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that sounds like a good boat to sail away yeah. with your partner in. Mm-hmm. As I was saying, Tsao maintains a kind of level of plausible deniability in her queerness. Just treading the line, you know. I think it's, with unconventional in there, it's almost not deniable. But to some extent, I have to say that if it's made it to the 21st century and we're looking at it and going, I think this seems probably queer, like plausible deniability, but this is queer, then at the time I feel like this may have been more overt. Mm, mm, that is true. That is true. We're not really clear at the time how open she might have been able to be about her attraction to women. The scholar Dorothy Coe writes that since male and female spheres were kept so separate in late imperial China, so around this time, by late I mean, you know, there's still a century or so of imperial China left, but imperial China's been going for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, with separate spheres, women in a female sphere had the space to form relationships with each other without kind of male interference or men worrying about, you know, are they friends or is it romantic or what's happening. I feel like this is also a fairly common experience of queer women in history. Hmm, I think it is that kind of men don't care so long as they're doing it in the domestic sphere and it's not affecting men. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that is a pretty common thing, and I think that's why we so often see in, say, laws that male homosexuality is illegal or is punished more severely than female homosexuality might be, which might be not punished so severely or might even just not be mentioned. Yeah. And I mean, this is definitely generalising across cultures and societies, Mm. but you do get a lot of that kind of women are expected to have these, like, close emotional 
connections with other women. Yeah. And because men are so focused on penetration as, like, the <laughs> site of sexual intercourse, like, yeah. they don't necessarily recognize... Yeah, whether these relationships are sexual or whether they're just friends. Yeah, and like I said, at this time in our 19th century China, there was a convention of women writing these really effusive poems to their female friends about how great they were. So those relationships were acceptable and that was a normal thing. And I was going to say, what really might be happening there is not that it's acceptable to write florid poetry to your best friend. What really might be happening there is that relationships between women may have been quite common. Yeah, yeah, and kind of largely just allowed to happen. When they were talked about, and they are talked about in literature from this time in China, romantic relationships between women are often seen as being kind of lesser in some ways than heterosexual marriages. So they didn't necessarily condemn female same-sex relationships, but there is kind of this hierarchy going on where reproductive sex and male-female marriage is considered the most important. Yeah. And non-reproductive sex and female relationships are kind of, they happen, but they're kind of these trivial, frivolous things that women are doing amongst themselves. And in that context, it probably it is quite big for Zhao to say, I want to possess the promised heart of a woman. I want to, you know, take you away in my marriage boat. Yeah, I guess she's talking about a woman more like a man might traditionally talk about a woman. Yeah. Mm. And we'll have to do more episodes where we look into more of this. Um, Sounds like there's a fair bit of it, more of this queer Chinese literature from around this time and see mm. how they talk about these things. The other one of Zhao's works, which I want to talk about, is a play which she wrote, which is called Zhao Ying. So this play is a Zhaozhu, which is a specific type of Chinese play, also sometimes called a Chinese opera. So it's made up of kind of recitations of poetry and songs and prose monologues. Zhao at this time was one of the very few women writing Zhaozhu. I should just mention this play has two titles that it's known by. I mentioned the first one, Zhao Ying, which means the image in disguise. And the second one, which I'm just going to let Irene say because it's quite long. <laughs> and that means drinking wine while reading Encountering Sorrow. Encountering Sorrow <laughs> is our famous Chinese poem that we're going to discuss. <laughs> I think that's quite a funny title. Yeah, It's just like, this is called The Image in Disguise or Getting Trashed Reading Sad Poetry. <laughs> <laughs> so the main character of the play is a female artist called Xie Shuzai. Her name Xie alludes to the 4th century female poet Xie Daoyun. And Shuzai refers to that poet's most famous line in which she compared snow to willow catkins born on the wind. Do you know what a willow catkin is? It's a kind of... It's a fluffy seed. Yeah, it's a fluffy, <laughs> fluffy plant material. Yeah, it's one of those seeds that when the wind blows, the air fills with fluff and you sneeze a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So she used that as a way to describe snow and that specific line won her a family poetry contest against her male cousins and brothers. I love that the family had a poetry off. I want to hear more <laughs> about this woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if she was queer, but we'll look into her. Because of this woman, female talent, or tai, began to be known as talent for praising willow catkins, which are shoot. So shu tai refers in the name of this main character to female talent. Okay. So she's basically just named gifted poet. Yeah, she's basically just named gifted female poet. <laughs> okay. She's actually an artist. She paints. Okay. So the play is quite short. It's really only a few pages long. And it doesn't really have a plot. It's more of a monologue delivered by shu tai while sitting in front of a portrait that she has painted of herself as a man. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if anyone in the modern day is still putting on this play, but 
It'd be interesting to see. I'm trying to think if the version I read was behind a paywall or not, but if it's not, I'll put a link up on our blog and you can read it yourself. The portrait which Shu Tsai has painted of herself as a man is entitled Drinking Wine and Reading Encountering Sorrow, <laughs> which is where that alternative title of the play comes from. So Encountering Sorrow, which is known in Chinese as Li Sao, is a poem about 400 lines long, written in the 4th century BC, so long, long time ago, but very famous, by the poet Chu Yuan, a minister in the ancient state of Chu. The narrator who is generally seen as representing Chu Yuan himself, is a frustrated statesman who's lost the favour of his king and is being slandered by his fellow ministers. What a tragedy. Yeah. Chu Yuan, the author of this poem, eventually drowned himself. Why he did this is a topic which is perpetually debated, and we don't have a good answer, but he is now remembered for both his poetry and his moral principles, which he stood by during the um, conflict in China, which was taking place during his lifetime, both internal within his kingdom and more broad during the um, what's known as the Warring States period. If you know of the Chinese Dragon Boat Festival, the Dragon Boat races which go on during this festival are supposed to represent the local people rushing out into the river in which Chu Yuan drowned himself to try and rescue him or try and protect his body from being eaten by fish or taken by evil spirits. Aww. So he's a very famous man in China. The main character of the play, Shu Tsai, is a female artist and she, like Sao herself feels that her work will never be appreciated because she's a woman. And she compares her feelings of being kind of wandering and lost and underappreciated to Chu Yuan's own feelings before he died of having been kind of rejected by his king and the court that he wanted to be a part of and had been a part of. So when she's looking at this portrait of herself as a man, mm -hmm. yeah, is it a portrait of herself as Chu Yuan? No, no, it's not. So it's a portrait of herself drinking wine and reading his poem, Encountering Sorrow. Oh, okay, okay. It's not her in, like, God's place, Chu Yuan. No, 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 it's not. She's just thinking about him. Yeah, she's just thinking about him. And the reason that what she's doing in this, or what he's doing in this portrait, is drinking wine and reading Encountering Sorrow is because these two activities, particularly together, are very, very heavily coded masculine. Ah. They're associated with the image of what's called a ming shu, which is a word that's a little bit hard to translate. So it's variously been translated in what I was reading as a sophisticated gentleman, or a man of letters, or a bachelor. I think you can get kind of an image of what yeah, that means. Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of an educated dude who reads stuff and, you know... Yeah. yeah. Drinking wine and reading Encountering Sorrow are strongly associated with a Ming Shu in reference to a famous quote by the 5th century writer Liu Yiqing, who said that to become a Ming Shu, you don't need to have talents or accomplishments, all you need to do is drink wine and read Encountering Sorrow. <laughs> so I should picture Ming Shu as like the equivalent of sitting on South Lawn reading Nature. Yeah, shout out to the UniMelb students who sit on South Lawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, getting drunk and reading Nature. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly like that. Yeah. It's exactly like that. In the play, Shu Tsai talks about how she, or the masculine portrait of her, is a Ming Shu, who feels, quote, fettered by her body, end quote, which is a female body, and she compares herself to being a trapped, caged bird. It's, like, impossible to say anything about this. Like, you will not know, we cannot mm. know, but... As an alternative reading to her being trapped because she has a profession that's not appreciated mm. when it's done by a woman, is there? there's an alternative reading here where we're talking about a trans man. Yeah, and that's definitely something that I wanted to bring up here. And that, interestingly, is something that I never found discussed in the scholarship. Really? Nobody's talked about that possibility. 
And obviously it's hard to say because we're, we're talking about a society where women were quite confined in what they could do. So there are many reasons to want to not be in a body that's perceived as female that aren't that you are not female. And I suppose that when it's coming from Zhao, that because what we know about her is that she's struggling for appreciation in her Mm. profession because she's a woman, it's easy to kind of make that connection and go, oh, this is a character who means something personally to her. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I can see why we might prioritise that reading, but I don't think the trans man reading is completely discardable. I think that's definitely a valid reading and definitely something that it would be very interesting for a scholar to look into. And there's a quote here from the play which I think definitely supports that reading, in which Shu Tsai explains why she created the painting, and she says, quote, While miraculous transformation into another form depends on heaven, how I conduct myself is up to me. This is why the other day I painted a small portrait of myself transformed into male garments and shoes and entitled it Drinking Wine While Reading Encountering Sorrow. So yeah, even the possibility of a physical change into a body that would be perceived as male is discussed in the play. Yeah, and there the character is saying, I can't have that because that's beyond, like, human means. Yeah, but she's painted a portrait of herself as she would like to transform. Yeah. So yeah, definitely this can be read as a trans work. Yeah. And I didn't even think as I was beginning this script for this podcast, should I use female pronouns for this character? And I decided I would because that's what is used throughout the play. Like, I would have to look at the play. But for a long time, there were not gendered pronouns in Mandarin. Oh, So he and she are both ta. Okay. They're homophones. They're written with a different character now. But they weren't? But they weren't always. Okay, well, we'll definitely have to look at that because I didn't know that and in the English translation I read, female pronouns were used and there was no footnote mentioning that. Like, I don't know when this change happened Mm in Chinese language, but yeah, they were always like he, she and it are all homophones. Okay, that's very interesting. We'll look into that and get back to you. Especially because then if you're seeing the play performed... Yeah. Like... You've got no way of knowing. And also, speaking of performance, so the stage directions call for Shu Tsai to be played by a Shao Sheng, which is an actor who specialises in playing young male roles. Okay, okay. And we're not actually clear whether Cao intended this actor to be male or female just somebody who specializes in playing young male roles there were also female actors who specialized in playing male roles in english scholarship and probably there's more available in chinese but in english scholarship this is unclear and one of the articles i read was saying you know this scholar says that women didn't appear on stage in this time but this same scholar also um references women appearing on stage so which is it yeah okay okay so yeah it was hard to find out in english and the scholarship i read said that it wasn't clear what the gender of this actor was supposed to be but it's supposed to be an actor who plays young men. Okay, okay. Whether it's a male or female actor, and maybe it's not even specified. Maybe it doesn't matter as long as... As long as they can play both this character and they can play young men. Yeah, and we do know that the first time this play was performed, Shu Tsai was actually played by a man. Okay, okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's a pretty trans play, I would say. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Just to finish talking about the play and, you know, how the play winds up, Shu Tsai talks about Chu Yuan and she says, Chu Yuan's soul went to heaven, but his name continues to prevail on earth. His glory after death is great, but I, I will sink into oblivion. And that's kind of the major theme of the play. 
that she will sink into oblivion because she is a woman. And the play ends with her rolling up the painting and singing a dirge for the painting because that's, it can't be a reality. That's quite interesting. That's her like rolling up the painting and kind of singing this like funeral song for a male mm. version of herself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because as she said, only heaven can transform her into a man. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. As I've mentioned, a major theme of Tal's play is that the work of female artists goes unrecognised. But the play was actually a great success. Oh, that's quite interesting. Yeah, it, it was really popular. It was performed, the script was published, and it was widely read. And after the success of her play, Tsao went on to become a student of the male poet Chen Wen Shu. In a preface that he wrote to a collection of her works, he compared her to two of the most famous poets of the Song dynasty, which is the 10th to 13th century in China. And she's been recognized as one of the greatest Tzu writers, so lyric poetry writers, of the Qing dynasty, which spans some 300 years, including her lifetime. That is a big poetry success. Yeah, yeah. So she didn't fade into oblivion. So that's pretty much as much as I know about Tsao and her work. There's only a few of her poems which I've seen published in English, unfortunately. In her later life, she stopped writing and apparently converted to Buddhism and possibly became a Buddhist nun. And she eventually died around 1862, so in her 60s. And I just want to end with a quote by one of Tsao's contemporaries about her. And I'll just remind you before I read this quote that Chu Yuan was a Chu minister. So that's going to be important in this quote. So the male poet Qi Yanhui, who lived at the same time as Zhao, wrote, How can one be certain that this person with the virtues of Mellow Lotus and Orchid isn't the reincarnation of the vanished Chu minister from the past? Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. And I think she would have been very happy with that. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting that in his, like, comment on her, he's transgressed gender boundaries. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's true. He has. Because I think by saying the virtues of Mellow Lotus and Orchid, obviously flowers are usually associated with women, and that's kind of yeah saying, how can we be sure that this person, who is a woman, isn't a reincarnation of this famous and very revered man? As you were reading that, and you were like, isn't the reincarnation of, and I expected that famous female <laughs> poet to come up. No, 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 no. But no, it was, you know, she's a famous reincarnation of this very, like, well-respected and morally forthright minister. Yeah, yeah. And as we mentioned when I was talking about his poem, Encountering Sorrow, very masculine-coded. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any final closing thoughts on Tsao? Yeah, I'm very interested that this has turned out to be more of an episode about gender, really, than it mm. was an episode about same-sex attraction. Yeah, yeah. I think that was definitely the most interesting and also what we had the most material on. Yeah. yeah. From those poetry excerpts you read me at the start, I'm quite happy to like agree that Tsao is attracted, attracted to, women. to women. Yeah, I think that's pretty definitive, yeah. Yeah, but the ways that, like, Uzao and her writing interact with gender probably almost would have been more transgressive or more queer mm. in the context. Yeah, given what we talked about, how women's relationships were kind of pretty acceptable if you kept them in the women's sphere. Yeah. A woman trying to leave the sphere, or somebody who is perceived as a woman trying to leave that female sphere, is a much more interesting and transgressive act at the time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I want to sort of say in a more general sense, because this is something I think I feel fairly strongly about, just in terms of what queerness is. Mm. We have these kind of conversations all the time about, you know, is this experience queer? Is this identity queer? Is yeah. that a queer thing? And I think at some point, like, we have to accept that 
what's queer changes from context to context. That's true. Like different societies have different conceptions of what is normal in terms of gender and sexuality and what is transgressive. And so something that we think is transgressive might have been totally normal in the time and place that it happened. Yeah. And so like from our position, like a woman writing poetry, yeah. a woman writing a play is not remotely transgressive, but a woman loving another woman is. Yeah, and I think while both were to some degree transgressive at the time, writing that play was a much more transgressive act. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So yeah, that's been good. I'm definitely going to go and read a bunch more about Utsa now. <laughs> I'm going to have to go through and like translate that Baidu article I read for us. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah, it has a bunch of information about like her later life and her time as a Buddhist nun. Okay, so maybe another day we'll do a second episode on Tsao, where Irene, who speaks Chinese... Yeah, and I'm sorry, I was totally going to do this episode, and then (laughs) it just didn't happen. (laughs) That's all right, that's all right. It's been a good introduction, and we might hear more in the future. Thank you very much for listening to our conversation about Wu Tsao. Thank you also, Irene, for helping me struggle my way through Chinese tones. That's okay, and just, yeah, listeners, bear with me. I haven't studied Chinese in, like, three years, so... If anything's a little bit off, I'm sorry. (laughs) But we hope that would have made it a little bit easier for our Chinese listeners to recognise words that they may want to look up later. Or, you know, just to hear us try not to mangle things (laughs) as best we can. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on social media where we'll be putting up some more information, links to poems and so forth. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact, and you can get in touch with us through those platforms, or you can also email us directly if you have any thoughts on the episode or any suggestions for future episodes or anything like that, and that's at queerasfact at gmail.com. And you can listen to more of our podcasts on Podbean, now on Spotify, on iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you listen to us on iTunes, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave us a review, because that really helps us to reach a wider audience. We'll be back next week on the 15th of September, when I'll be talking to you again about the erotic pottery of the Mochi people of ancient Peru. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.